You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. My name's Jeff. I've had the privilege of serving on staff here for about three years. And um, in case you don't already know it, I have a passion for students. <clears throat> I wear several hats, but that's, that's by far my favorite. I believe with all my heart that Students are the single most influential generation on the planet. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, there was a little boy with a high-pitched voice who became a YouTube sensation overnight. His name was Justin Bieber. (laughs) This guy became a rock star, man, a pop star, if you will, selling out concerts, thousands and thousands of people coming to hear his high-pitched voice. And there was one concert that he walked out on stage wearing purple skinny jeans. Let that sink for a second. You would never catch me ever wearing a pair of purple skinny jeans, much less skinny jeans. My thighs don't fit. But something interesting happened after he took that step of fashion confidence, if you will. Several magazines around the country said that at the end of that fiscal year, do you know what the number one selling clothing item was for men in the country? Purple skinny jeans. What the heck? That's that's the influence. Now, whether it's positive or negative is up to you to discern, but that's the influence. Some call it pop culture. Others call it social media. It is what it is. This generation has the ability to influence others. And at the end of the day, here's what we want to do at Stonegate. We want to tap into that influence to see it unleashed for the glory of God. Part of our annual strategy in that is is summer camp. And we just got back a couple weeks ago. Not just the students, but the children as well. Two phenomenal camps. The Lord is doing some really neat things in the hearts of our kids right now. There's students who met Jesus for the first time. There's kids who are confessing sin. There's some miracles taking place in the hearts of our kids. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you to this church. I want to say, uh, along with myself and Christina and our team and Lauren and her team and children's, how grateful we are for a church that has continued to support us, not just prayerfully, but also financially. It's because of many of your, your sacrificial offerings over the course of the last couple of months that several kids had the opportunity to to go to camp and to experience God and to connect with him in more deep and meaningful ways. Your investment is not just allowing us to make more disciples, but better disciples. And I just wanna say thank you. We've been for the last five weeks in a series on the Psalms. God essentially gives us these Psalms so we can give them back to him. It's like he's saying, hey, I want to teach you how to praise me. No, literally, that's what the Psalms are. The truest Hebrew definition we have of the the word Psalms is actually translated as praises. God's saying, I'm giving you these so you can give them back to me. You know that we're going to be in Psalm chapter 51, but it's going to take us some time to actually get there this morning. Uh, We actually won't even be in Psalm 51 till uh, the end of this message because We've got to spend some time against the backdrop 
of the historical narrative of this guy named David. So if you will, jump back a few books to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to, uh, I want to pray for us again as you turn there. Lord, I'm grateful for a chance to open your word. Your word that is completely inspired by you, that is breathed out by you, every word. You tell us that in 2 Timothy 3.16. So we know that the Psalms are just as inspired as the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Romans, and Revelation. God, you've given us these to give them back to you. And for that, we are grateful this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to bring about conviction in the hearts of your people, conviction that would lead to repentance so that ultimately, Jesus, we can get more of you. God, would you do that this morning? Would you do what only you can do and bring about the change in the hearts of your people? We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus, all God's people said, amen. Anybody ever wish you had a do-over in life? By show of hands. A do-over? Okay, about a third of you. That's encouraging. Okay. So uh, there was a time in life at one point where uh, I was in college, and I, I really wanted to experience all that college had to offer. So uh, I didn't just play college football. I, I, I took part in clubs, social activities. Uh, I remember one time, I didn't even like politics. I ran for student senate. Someone said, hey, you should run for student body president. I said, what do you do? They go, I don't know, but you should do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I won. I didn't know what to do. I spent the next year trying to figure it out. It was, it was an interesting year. I, I literally wanted to take part in everything. I wanted to enjoy all five years of college. And so uh, I'll never forget my senior year. I was in the student union and I was enjoying God's chosen food for his chosen people, Chick-fil-A, with some of my best friends. And they said, man, what have you not done? You've done everything. I'm like, man, there's one thing I haven't done. You know what I've always wanted to try? I wanted to dab in theater. They're like, you should do theater. I'm like, I don't know. Dude, they're, they're, they have a play tryout today. You should get over there. I'm like, done. So I went. I, I bust open the doors. Tryouts had already closed. I didn't care. I said, hey, can, can I try out for the play? They said, sure, why not? Come on stage. Uh, what's your monologue? I said, a mono what? They said, do you have something prepared? I said, nope, what do you need? I said, I know the theme song to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and that's about it. So uh, let's, let's make this thing happen. And so back and forth, we, we kind of engaged each other with some, uh, with some ideas and some scripts. And before, before I knew it, I, I was a part of these things called callbacks, where they invite you back to try out some more. They want to see if you'd be right for a certain part. I had a blast, but before long, they had me uh, imitating certain animals. And I was like, what are we doing? They said, do you even know what plate we're trying out for? I said, no. They said, this is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I said, oh, great. Love that movie. Read the book when I was nine. And so uh, before long, I land this role as the captain in the White Witch's army. I'm like the second baddest dude in the whole play, right, behind the White Witch. And basically, my role is to, like, kill the humans, right, <laughs> to find them, whoever's helping them, because they're going to get Aslan, you know, win the day, and I got to stop that from happening. I had a blast. I loved it, but at the end of our production, we did what was called children's theater. We performed the play for the entire school district. So from the front row, you had kindergartners and first graders all the way back through, for, through fifth graders. 
So you're performing this as your last play because you've you performed your whole round at regionals. You kind of come back to your home city and you perform it for the school district and you're done. I'm like, you're done? That's kind of depressing. I want to enjoy this moment. I was convinced that I was going to outperform Leonardo DiCaprio in this last role. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to perform so greatly, someone in LA was going to call me after this play. And I thought, I'm going to leave everything I have out there. I'm going to be the greatest wolf mankind has ever known. Well, my first scene, I, before I came out, you know, I've got wolf makeup. I have a tail. I got fangs and claws. I, I, I threw extra blood all over my face so it would just drip out. My first scene, I jump off the roof of Tumnus's house. He's that little half horse, half man guy. And basically, I jump off of his roof and I land on top of him. And I, I oversold this moment. I wanted to leave everything I had out there. I took my claws and I grabbed his neck and I picked him up, blood just coming down my face with the greatest wolf howl you've ever heard. Followed by the most blood curdling scream of kindergartners and first graders <laughs> you've ever heard forgetting that they were right in the front few rows. The next 10 minutes, every teacher and administrator in the district was controlling this uncontrollable sobs coming from the first four rows. The next 10 minutes, no one knew what happened in that play. But you can just imagine that moment. I wanted so bad to have a redo. Clutching the throat of this guy, spitting blood in his face. I wanted to change the whole course of the play in that moment. It's okay, boys and girls, I'm a good wolf now. <laughs> you can't do that. I've got three more scenes where I eat people coming up. So I did what any guy would do. The show must go on. I ate him and I moved on, right? No, I wanted so bad in that moment to have a redo, but I, I didn't get one. In much the same way, we're going to read a story about a guy who was in desperate need of a redo. He wished it. He confessed it. But more importantly, he repented of it. It will take us some time to get there, but we're going to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Before we do, I want to paint a brief picture of the history of this guy named David, who was the youngest of all his brothers, not even chosen to be in the lineup for king. Are there any more brothers? This is all you have? Well, there's one more, but he's a shepherd. He's bathing some sheep. He's, he's, he's a little runt. He's not worthy of this role. I think he is. Let's call him up. Sure enough, you know what happens. David is, is anointed to be the next king of Israel. A couple chapters later, you know what happens. One of the most famous stories of all time, David and Goliath. This giant Philistine is taunting the people of God in this valley, and they're just frozen in fear. I mean, they... They have no idea what to do. No one wants to challenge him, mano y mano. David gets word of this rumbling in the valley, and he walks up. says, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, there's this guy taunting, taunting us in the name of God. And David's like, we can't have that. Who's going to fight him? Nobody. Bump that. I'll do it. They're like, you're a little shepherd boy. He's like, I don't care. It, it ain't me. It's the Lord. And Saul, King Saul's like, all right, whatever. Here's my armor. David's like, I can't wear that. It's too heavy. I got five stones. Some say he grabbed five stones because Goliath had four brothers. He wasn't going to miss four times. I love that. He went in knowing that the God was on his side. 
Of course, you know what happens. He defeats the giant. He slings the stone. He strikes him dead. And in one of the most greatest fashions, you could read this portion of the story to your kids at, at bedtime. He, he cuts his head off and he holds the head up in front of the entire armies. And he says, my God has delivered us. God has won this battle. Of course, you know what happens next. People start singing David's praises. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Lo and behold, that root of bitterness was planted into the soul of Saul. The next couple chapters is spent Saul chasing David, trying to kill him because jealousy had consumed his heart. At one point, Saul found himself resting in a cave where he fell asleep and David was close by. Urged by his companions to end the life of Saul, David humbly responded, far be it from me to touch God's anointed. Even though he knew he was the next anointed to be the king of Israel in that line of succession, he submitted to the Lord and his authority, knowing full well that decision was not his, it was the Lord's, and he did not end Saul's life in that moment. Saul later found out about it, got more bad. This makes no sense. Jealousy had consumed him. And before long, David becomes king. And Israel enjoyed the most prosperous season in the history of their people. At this point, Israel had never known a greater peace. David had conquered army after army, going into battle in the name of the Lord, giving praise to whom all praise is due. And eventually, I guess, after all those battles, David just got comfortable. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, here's what we read. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, David remained in Jerusalem. You see, David stayed back at the palace while his army went out to war. Scripture even says the season where kings go out to battle. This isn't like David. I mean, he was the people's champ. He was the Rocky Balboa of the Old Testament. But now he's content with what the world had to offer him. In verse 2, it happened one late afternoon. It's an interesting choice of word to describe the horrid set of circumstances that are about to unwind in his life. It. I guess the author couldn't come to grips with something like the worst outcome imaginable. But let's read on through verse 4. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. David has an affair with Bathsheba. This is not good. Not even close. In verse 5, she sends word she's pregnant. This is starting to play out like a bad episode of Jersey Shore. If you have no idea what I'm referring to, just know it's the same plot as every other stupid reality show everyone gets sucked into. Fake drama. Here's what happens next. David calls for Joab, the leader of the army, 
to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back home. Oh, praise the Lord. Wow. It seems as if in this moment, David's about to come clean. He's going to confess his sin. He's going to bring this guy back home. He's got he's to lay bare the wickedness of his soul and plead for forgiveness. At least now we'll get some closure to the story. Nope. David tries to get Uriah to come stay and sleep with his wife with hopes that his sin will be covered up. He can pawn off the pregnancy on Uriah. Sin is a spiral, no matter how small you may think it is. If it goes unconfessed, it only gets worse. You know what Uriah did? He didn't go home. He was a faithful leader. David said, why didn't you go home to your wife? He said, far be it from me to go home in the comfort of my house and eat that food and lay with my wife when my soldiers are out at war sleeping in tents on the battlefield. David keeps him one more night. This time, brings him to the palace for a feast, feeds him the best food. The Chick-fil-A for Israelites gets him drunk near intoxication. Uriah leaves the party somewhat intoxicated and didn't go home to his wife. Instead, he slept on a couch near the servants of the Lord. Even when not in his right mind, he maintained a character that was non-existent in David. Look at verses 14 with me. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. David wrote a letter to the commander of the army on the battlefield, and he gave it to Uriah to deliver this letter to the commander of the army. In that letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David has literally placed Uriah's own death warrant in his hands without his knowledge. In his faithfulness, Uriah delivers his own death warrant. You read on to verse 26 to find what happened when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think? Might be the most Captain Obvious statement in all of Scripture. The thing David had done had displeased the Lord. Yes. Sin displeases God. God hates sin. He despises it. It's the very antithesis of his nature. The psalmist describes God's hatred of sin this way in chapter 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. God hates sin because he's holy. Holiness is the most exalted of all of his attributes. The Bible presents God's attitude towards sin with strong feelings of hostility, disgust, utter dislike. For example, 
The sin described in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6 is described as rotting wounds. In Psalm 38, a heavy burden. In Titus 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a defiling filth. In Matthew 6, a binding debt. In 1 John 1, darkness. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, a scarlet stain. God hates sin because it lessens our love for him. The Bible says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. James also warns us of the danger of embracing the world. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Luke 16 says, no one can serve two masters. We must choose between sin and righteousness. Kevin Hill preached on Psalm 1 five weeks ago. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but in the path of righteousness. One of our truest marks as followers of Jesus should be hating sin. Like David, we're all going to sin. We're born in iniquity. Isaiah chapter 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. But let David be an illustration for each of us that we're all about five minutes away from a massive train wreck in our lives. And not one of us is exempt. David, Abraham, Moses, giants of the faith that we read about, all did horrific things. Moses killed the dude. That, that's the star-studded cast right there. Their lives should be used to show us that even the best of us is capable of these things. Not just the worst of us. The best of us is capable of these things. Adolf Eichmann was a German Nazi. He was a lieutenant colonel in the army. Hitler's right-hand guy. He was a major organizer of the Holocaust. Yechiel Denur, a Jew who had to face his accuser from the block of 24 from Auschwitz concentration camp, had to testify face to face against Eichmann. And while in the middle of his testimony, he fainted in the courtroom. Years later, in a 60 Minutes interview, Denor was asked, what happened in the courtroom that day? Why did you faint? Denor said he no longer understood the Holocaust as having taken place on a different planet. He explained that his collapse on encountering Eichmann in court could be attributed to the realization that he himself was no different than the officer. Simply put, he said, Eichmann is in all of us.
Let's turn the page to chapter 12, because before we can hit chapter 51, we have to look at a guy named Nathan and the pivotal role that he plays in the life of David, a role of accountability. 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord had to send Nathan to David. It's never good when it comes to that. But let me just say this, it sure is awesome that we serve a God who not only saves us, but sustains us. He's not just faithful to bring about salvation, he's consistently faithful to produce our sanctification. In other words, hey, I love you so much, I died for you. But hey, I love you way too much to leave you there. Beginning in verse 12, we'll read on through verse 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock from his herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But instead, the rich man took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And in verse seven, Nathan says to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The Hebrew phrase for you are that man. Hataish. Boldly approaching the face of a king. Hataish, you are that man. You are deserving of death. It's a mic drop moment. Nathan wrecked his soul. But at the same time, he just risked his life. A servant in the courts of the king, boldly approaching the king, raising his voice with fury, yelling at the king of Israel to his face that he is deserving of death? Who is this Nathan guy? I kind of like him. Nathan's a prophet who ministered in the courts of David. He wasn't a man with a political agenda like some of the false prophets of old who told the powers that be what their itching ears wanted to hear. No, not, not even close. He was a prophet of God whose messages were divine revelation. See, Nathan is displayed as courteous, but uncompromising. His stand against David's unacceptable behavior ranks him among the fearless band of Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Amos, men who condemned injustice whenever they saw it. While Nathan is one of David's subjects, he's also God's mouthpiece. I mean, Nathan, he's just fearless in his approach to the king. But he was courageous because he knew where his ultimate authority came from. Nathan was more than a royal advisor. 
Sure, he was employed by the king, and he was a trusted friend. But more importantly, he was a divine messenger who delivered God's message of both criticism and encouragement. Guys, we're all in need of a Nathan. Let me just ask you this. Who's, who's the Nathan in your life? Who's the person or the people that you open the wickedness of your heart to? While the NFL season is quickly approaching, I'll use this analogy. Why is it that we stiff arm Nathans in our life? And by stiff arm, I mean reject people who are walking with God who want to speak truth into our lives. And by reject, for most of you, I mean avoid. There's just something in us. And I'd be willing to bet that you probably know what it is. For some of you, it's a fear of being found out. Which is ironic because having your sin brought to light might be the best thing for you. I had a buddy in college named Blake. He told me an analogy one time, I'll never forget it. He said, Jeff, I think one of the best things that could happen to you is if we displayed a video screen in front of all your peers, just played your sin, laid it bare. He said, I think one of the reasons why that'd be so great is you'd be so humbled, you'd be forced to run to the Lord. He'd be the only thing you had left. And the real you would be brought to light. And as a result, you would get more of God in that process. But for others, it's a trust issue. We believe that the Nathans in our life are trying to punish us as opposed to fighting for our joy. Is that how you view a friend who wants to keep you accountable? Do you avoid those conversations like the plague? Do you think that they're just after your punishment and your begrudging submission and not fighting for your joy? You see, the way that, the way that you view Nathan in your life is indicative of how you view the Lord. Here's the reality. Rejecting accountability in your walk with Christ, it's just a sign of spiritual immaturity. Well, Jeff, my Nathan is probably my home group. Really? Are you sure about that? Because as of recently, I'm able to throw in a third category. Transparent people. Well, Jeff, isn't that the opposite of what David did? Shouldn't transparency be praised? Not necessarily. You see, the reason I'm able to point this one out is because it applies directly to me. Some people use their transparency as a defense mechanism. It's a lot easier to tell people your junk or rather what you want them to hear instead of having them pointed out in you first. See, there's a big difference between transparency and vulnerability, a big difference. And it wasn't until a few months ago that a friend loved me enough to point it out in my own heart. See, transparency is, here's my window. You can look in and see all my junk. But vulnerability is, here's my door. Let me invite you into it. I've recently had to confess to my home group that I'm much better at the former. And I, I need them to work with me on the latter. Let me just say this. If you're the hero in your own story far too often, or on the other end of that spectrum, you control how bad you look, 
then you too, like David, might be in need of a soul-wrecking moment. Chapter 12, let's look at verse 12. The Lord says through Nathan to David, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. The Lord says, you did your sin in secret, I'm about to make it public. Here's the truth, y'all. Our sin's coming out one way or another. It's gonna be made known one day. After Nathan's rebuke of David, the king turns around and he writes Psalm chapter 51. The author of this psalm, David himself, wrote this expression while in the deepest parts of his sin. Having committed both adultery and premeditated murder. Literally hand-delivered the guy's death warrant to cover up his own sin. I'm not sure how much lower you can get. But after being approached by a guy that loves the Lord and wanted nothing more than to be obedient to his commands, this was where David turned. And as much as I wish we had time to walk through verse by verse, because there's so much rich content in this chapter. We only read 12 of the 19 verses, but we're going to hone in on verses 10 through 12. David says and pleads with the Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, I bet that when we, hear, we first hear the good news of Jesus, we're quite content to receive the forgiveness that we're offered through Christ. But let me ask you a question. What if Jesus died for more than forgiveness? The good news of the gospel doesn't end with a pardon. It begins with one. We too often treat grace like it's God's big eraser for our every mistake. But God doesn't want to just scrub the page clean. He wants to make you a fresh sheet. The gospel doesn't just get you out of hell. It's not a get out of jail free card. It makes you new. He wants to take what was once broken and dead and replace it by breathing life into it. I once heard an analogy of the gospel of someone who described salvation this way. You're in the ocean and you're drowning. Your boat is sunk. Searching for anything to grab onto, someone throws you a life raft. Symbolically, that life raft is Jesus, and you grab a hold of it, and you're pulled to safety. And you're rescued, and you cling to him, and you say, I've been saved, I've been rescued. Here's my problem with that analogy. Jesus didn't throw you a life raft. You know what really happened? You died. You drowned. You didn't find a stinking life raft. You ceased to breathe and you sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And you know what he did? He brought you back to life. He breathed life into you. That's the gospel. No one can revive you, especially not yourself when you're dead. Jesus made you new. He brought you back to life and gave you a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, 
You're in Christ. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That word new creation finds its root in the English word metamorphosis. We get that word from the Greek metamorphosis, which is how we explain the process of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It's a beautiful, unexplainable miracle. But when God gives you a new heart, it doesn't mean you'll never struggle again. Instead, it just means you'll be going to him more often. David didn't want to just be absolved of wrongdoing. He wanted to change. Grace doesn't just shed the weight of past sins. It empowers you to live differently. The pattern of Psalm 51 is echoed throughout all the Bible. God's forgiving grace is also a transforming grace. Romans 12.1, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The grace he gives in forgiveness, yes, It's beyond our wildest imaginations. But he's promised an even more glorious miracle. God wants to make you new. John Calvin says, it's natural for the saints when they've fallen into sin that they should feel an anxiety upon this point. Fearing that he might be deprived of the spirit, but it's their duty to hold fast the truth that grace is the incorruptible seed of God, which can never perish in any heart where it has been deposited. This is the mindset of David. He literally asked God to create in me a new heart. The word create in the Hebrew is barach. It's a Hebrew word that means to create from nothing. The only subject in all of Scripture Whoever accompanies this verb, barach, is God himself. And he does so 39 times in the Old Testament. Verlin Verbrugge is the editor of the Dictionary of New Testament Theology. It just means he's a really smart dude. And he says that this word, barach, expresses God's new work of creation, extending also into history. In the well-known text, Create in me a pure heart, O God, the reference Barach reveals the rift that runs through the original creation, which makes it necessary for God to intervene on behalf of his chosen people and the sinner. In other words, redemption has its roots in creation. God is making new what was once broken. By employing this term create, David's expressing this. That nothing less than a miracle could affect his transformation. He's acknowledging that we are all indebted entirely to the grace of God. Not partially. Wholly. Both for salvation and our sanctification. And the way forward into that new life is what we call repentance. This is what David's doing. He's mourning his sin. He's crying out to God. Charles Spurgeon writes this about repentance. It's a discovery of the evil of sin. A mourning that we have committed it. A resolution to forsake it. It is a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. 
repentance in Jesus' message is not just outward behavior. Let's be very clear on that. Believing that for 20-something years put me in a very dark place. Believing that repentance was my own efforts and my own works to run as far from sin as I could on my own. Instead, it's the interchange that gives rise to the new God-centered, Christ-exalting behavior. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. This happens a lot in my world of student ministry. Sometimes sparks fly. Boy's not a Christian. I guess girl is. Boy says, what do I have to do to get with her? She goes to church, I can go to church. I can put up with that dude for 30 minutes. You know what, I'm gonna tuck in my shirt. I'm gonna wear gel. Brush my teeth for a change, put on deodorant. I'm gonna memorize Bible verses. I'm gonna know when to raise my hands at a certain part of the song. And kids in the youth ministry are like, is this dude saved? Look at all the changes he's made. Sure enough, two 14-year-olds realize they will not get married. And sadly, they break up after four days. <laughs> they remove all their pictures of each other from Instagram as if they never existed. What happens to that guy? Does he remain within the body of Christ to become accountable to other believers and seek Christ on his own accord? Of course not. Because it was merely outward change that was not reflective of an inward transformation. J.I. Packer writes, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Here's what Jesus says about repentance. In Matthew 4, 17, he began to preach at the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The first demand of Jesus' public ministry was repent. He spoke this command to anyone who would heed the call. It was a call for radical inward change toward God and man. John Piper says, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and obedience. The Greek word behind the English word repent shows us that repentance is an internal change of mind and heart instead of just mere sorrow for sin or improvement of your bad behavior. The word for repentance, metanoeo, has two parts. Meta and noeo. The second part refers to the mind, its thoughts, its perceptions, its dispositions, its purposes. 
The first part, meta, is a prefix that literally means movement or change. So the basic meaning of repent is to experience a change of the mind's thoughts, perceptions, and dispositions. You know, there's sin by action, but there's also sin by affection. Both are egregious to the Lord. Jeremiah 2, when God is prophesying to his people, he doesn't even address their actions. He addresses their affections. In other words, Jesus is saying, repentance isn't just about the moment of adultery. It's all the little things that lead up to it. Have you looked at a woman lustfully? Jesus says, if you have, you've already committed adultery in your heart. When Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he didn't mean that some people are good enough to not need repentance. He meant some think they are while others have already repented and they've been set right with God. For example, the, the rich young ruler desired to justify himself while the tax collector beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went down to his house justified by God. Therefore, no one is excluded. Everyone is in need of repentance and the need is urgent. There's a story of a guy who fell into lust. He was looking at some pornographic material that he shouldn't have been looking at. And a few days went by and he, he was approached by a man that he respected in the church, a guy that it loved Jesus. And he asked him, how are you doing? And he, he said, man, I gotta confess some sin to you. And he told him what happened and he walked him through just the wickedness of his heart and, and the play out in those moments. And the man's response was, praise God. The guy was like, praise God. What are you talking about, man? I'm in sin. He goes, oh, for the Lord to bring this about in your heart is a beautiful thing that you would confess that and repent from that and, and hate that. It's a beautiful desire. Only God could place that in your heart. He says, yeah, but I just feel guilty. He says, here's what you need to do. Don't wait three days next time. Next time it happens, he's like, next time it happens, he's like, just roll with me. Come to me within 24 hours, not three days. He's like, whatever, dude. Sure enough, some time goes by he falls into the same sin and he's distraught. There's no way he could bring this to light. Make him look disgusting and filthy. He just, he just, he couldn't look weak again. But sure enough, about 20 hours in, he calls him up and he confesses his sin. The man says, praise God. He says, praise God. I don't get it, man. He says, the Lord's producing something beautiful in you. He went from three days to a day. He says, I'll tell you what, next time, come me within eight hours before the sun goes down. He's like, whatever, dude. Sure enough, time goes by, he falls into it again. He calls him before the day is over. He's like, I just can't keep doing this, man. He goes, praise God. He's like, what do you mean, praise God? He's like, you repented. Look, look where he's brought you from four days to, to, to less than eight hours before the sun goes down. He's like, I just can't keep doing it anymore. He says, I'll tell you what, this time I want, you to, I want you to come to me within one hour 
after you sinned, the light bulb went off in the young man's heart. He said, wait a minute. What if I get to Jesus before I get to my sin? He said, I think you've got it. Repentance is supposed to lead us to Jesus. Confession of sin will lead to brokenness. I can promise you that. It's not a fun place. But the psalmist says in chapter 34 that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Meaning our brokenness leads us to grace. God's grace. God's unending, unconditional grace. And Romans says that it's God's goodness that leads men to repentance. And God's grace should lead us to repent from our sin, to despise it, to hate it. And repentance should get us to Jesus every time. And David cries out, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let's clarify one thing. Your salvation is secure in the name of Jesus Christ as a result of his blood that was shed on the cross for your sins. That is secure. He not only has saved you, he's promised to sustain you. That's the good news of the gospel. But when the sin easily entangles us, it chokes out all the joy. And I just think that many of us in this room this morning are finding ourselves in need of the same prayer. God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Give me the grace to repent from my sin and treasure you. So would you pray with me and ask God to do just that? Father, we are so very grateful for your word, your word that brings about conviction. You promised us in Jeremiah that when your word goes out, it never returns void. It's producing something in this room. I just pray that your spirit would move freely about this place to bring about that conviction that would lead to repentance, that would lead us to get more of you. God, I pray that you would show some of us in this room that our sin being brought to light would be a really, really good thing. And not just for the forgiveness of our own soul, or our own merit, but so that you will look really, really good. We thank you as a church, as your bride, as brothers and sisters who have been called out by you, who have been redeemed, rescued, and now sustained. We're expressing to you our deep gratitude for what you have accomplished, God. We pray that you would continue to work that out in each of us. We pray these things in the most precious name of your son, Jesus, all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.